Let's look at the book of Ephesians. We're going back to Ephesians now in chapter 3. And uh, we're going to read verses 1 through 13. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus, or of Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, and how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed, to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs and members of the same body and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Of this gospel I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power, To me, though I am the very least of all of the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone that is in the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. Father, we ask this morning that your book would live for us again and that you would speak to us in the preaching of your word. We confess and believe that your word is alive, it's active, it has a power and a life all its own, and, and when you decree that it be so, it enters into us with its own kind of life force and does things. It changes us. It doesn't just inform us in the way that other books do. It, it does do that, but then it changes us. And we would be changed, Father. For like Bunyan's pilgrim, we are weary of our inward sickness. Please, Jesus, come and add your blessing to your word. In your name we pray. Amen. Well, um, after an absence uh, from the book of Ephesians for a couple of months, um, since Ash Wednesday on March 2nd to be precise, We return to our studies in this magnificent book of Ephesians, some of the highest Christology and the highest theology in the whole of the New Testament. Excuse me. You may or may not remember that we left off at the end of chapter 2, having discovered that the Gentiles, who were formerly aliens and strangers to all that God was doing redemptively in the world, and they were alienated from the one true God as well as from the people of God. They have now been brought near by Christ. Those who have come to Christ are now reconciled to God and they are engrafted by Christ into the one people of God. And this is why theologies that posit more than one people of God 
and along with that, usually different economies or methodologies of salvation for the different groups are just plain wrong. There is, there always was, there always will be one people of God, those who have been redeemed by the shed blood of Jesus Christ and have appropriated that to themselves just as Abraham did by believing and having it credited to them as righteousness. As Peter said of Jesus at Pentecost in Acts 4.12, for there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Well, Paul turns his attention in this chapter from the recipients of the letter to himself at the beginning of chapter 3, just briefly. Now keep in mind Paul's situation in life as he was writing this letter to his friends in Ephesus. His situation when he's writing this letter is described for us in Acts chapter 28. He is under house arrest in Rome. He's chained to a Roman soldier 24 hours a day. He does have some freedom. He is able to live in a private home under guard, and he's able to to receive visitors, and people can come and meet his needs, but he can't leave, and he's chained to this soldier 24-7. He is awaiting trial by Caesar Nero, and so he is a prisoner of Nero. But that's not how he describes himself in chapter 3 and verse 1, is it? He describes himself as a prisoner of Christ. Now, this is one of those places where the editors of the ESV kind of bollocks things up, and then later on they fixed it. If you've got a little older version of the ESV, it doesn't say, it says a prisoner for Christ. That's not actually the Greek, not the good Greek anyway. It's a prisoner of Christ, and every other version in English says a prisoner of Christ, and so they finally knuckled under in this latest re-edit and made it a prisoner of Christ, but uh, he's a prisoner of Christ. Now, why did he say that? Why didn't he say For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Caesar Nero. Why didn't he say that? Well, it it wouldn't have been inaccurate or untruthful for him to say that, but instead he thinks of himself as a prisoner of Christ. And Paul does that because Paul knows in the depths of his being that as powerful as emperors are, God still rules and overrules all of the affairs of men. That our God is the one who sets up kings and emperors and presidents and prime ministers, and they only do what He permits them to do, and He can take them down whenever He wishes. In Proverbs chapter 21 and verse 1, it says that the king's heart is like a stream of water in the hands of the Lord, and He turns it wherever He wills. And King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon in the Old Testament learned that the hard way, didn't he? You can turn to, to, to Daniel real quick. We'll just read a little bit out of the prophet Daniel in your Old Testament. So Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel, and then you get to Daniel and chapter 4, and we have this wonderful little story. This is actually the only place where the words of a pagan are in the Bible as Scripture. These are the very words of King Nebuchadnezzar. This is a remarkable passage. Nebuchadnezzar has had a dream, and it's a disturbing dream, and he doesn't know what to do with it, and Daniel comes and interprets it, and Daniel's like, oh, king, that's bad news. You better repent. 
Well, Nebuchadnezzar, being Nebuchadnezzar, doesn't. And, uh, and, and, and then all of a sudden something happens to him. And, and in Daniel chapter 4 and verse 28, we find out what that is. And all of this came upon Nebuchad- King Nebuchadnezzar. At the end of 12 months, he was, so it's 12 months after his dream, he's forgot about it. Nothing's happened, nothing's going to happen, everything's fine, I'm, I'm good, it's all right. And he, so he's, God, God just waited 12 months to make his dream come true. At the end of 12 months, he was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon. Now, this was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, the hanging gardens of Babylon. It was the most impressive building on the planet at that time. And the king answered and said, is not this great Babylon, which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? And while the words were still in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven, O King Nebuchadnezzar, To you it is spoken. The kingdom has departed from you, and you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field, and you shall be made to eat grass like an ox. And seven periods of time shall pass over you until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. Immediately, The word was fulfilled against Nebuchadnezzar, and he was driven from among men, and he ate grass like an ox, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven until his hair grew as long as eagle's feathers, and his nails were like bird's claws. And then listen to this. This is the voice of this man in the scriptures. At the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven, And my reason returned to me, and I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are as accounted as nothing. And he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say to him, What have you done? And at this time, my reason returned to me. And for the glory of my kingdom, my counselors and my lords sought me, and I was established in my kingdom, and still more greatness was added to me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the King of heaven, for all his works are right, and all his ways are just, and those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. Nebuchadnezzar was the most powerful man on the planet at that time. And God just laid him low and then brought him back to show his power. A few years later, when it was time for the Babylonian exile of the children of Israel to end, God raised up another king, a Persian this time, named Cyrus. And God put it in his heart to restore the Jews who wanted to go back to the land and to finance the rebuilding of the temple and to sanction and permit the restoration of the walls of Jerusalem. Because God steers kings, even pagan kings. 
When Pontius Pilate was exasperated with Jesus, he cried out, you will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have the power to release you or to crucify you? And what did Jesus say in reply? You would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given to you from above. We find that in John 19. And so with this witness from the Scriptures and from the experience of the people of God, Paul is utterly confident that his imprisonment by Caesar Nero was completely in accord with the plan and purposes of God for his life. Humanly speaking, Paul was a victim of dreadful injustice. The Roman governor of Caesarea, which is the area around Jerusalem, kind of on the Mediterranean coast there. The Roman governor of Caesarea kept Paul in prison illegally in order to appease the Jews. You see, they, they, Paul had gone to the temple and somebody had falsely accused him of bringing an uncircumcised Gentile in the wrong place in the temple. And there was this great big riot. And the Romans are like, we don't speak this language. We don't know what's going on, but this guy seems to be at the middle of it. We're going to grab him up and figure it out. And, and so they, they did. And they arrested him, and, and they took him to the governor and said, you know, what are we supposed to do with him? And the governor said, I don't know. Let's find out what's going on. Well, the Jews came, and they couldn't make any charges against Paul that would stick for a Roman citizen. And, and, and they said, well, we want to try him in Jerusalem in our religious court. And the governor said, well, Paul, you want to go? And they, they didn't want to have a trial. They wanted to have a murder. They wanted to assassinate him while he was in court. And Paul knew this, and the governor knew this, and everybody knew this. And Paul's like, no, I'm standing right here in front of you. You're the one who's supposed to judge me. I'm a Roman citizen. Let's get it over with. I haven't done anything wrong. And the, and the governor said, okay, and kept him in prison for two years. Brought him out from time to time to talk to him, because he liked him. And this Roman governor, Felix, uh, should have declared Paul innocent and should have released him immediately. Instead, he kept him in prison for two years in Caesarea Philippi. And when Felix transfers out to go to his next promotion, he's replaced by a guy named Porcius Festus. And Festus had only been on the job three days when the Jews come at him, and ask, they're asking for Paul, and they're asking for Paul to be tried in Jerusalem. And once again, it's not about a trial. It's about a murder set up, and everybody knows it. And Festus tries to hand Paul off. And Paul stands again on his rights as a Roman citizen. And finally he says, I got to appeal to Caesar since you won't do what you're supposed to do. And, and so, so he does. That was the right of every Roman citizen. And at one point in Acts 26, Festus and another fellow and his wife are discussing Paul. And they say, this man has done nothing deserving death or imprisonment. This man could have been set free had he not appealed to Caesar. Well, had he not appealed to Caesar and everybody would do their stinking job, he could have set, been set free. But he wasn't. He'd already been a prisoner for more than two years by then. And though the book of Acts doesn't say it, both tradition and the pastoral epistles, especially 2 Timothy, tell us that Nero, who was exceedingly wicked and incompetent and bloodthirsty and power-hungry and vain, he did not treat Paul fairly at all. He beheaded him in about A.D. 66 outside of Rome. So here Paul sits imprisoned unjustly, writing this letter in about year three or year four of another prison stretch that he did absolutely nothing to deserve, and everyone involved at every point admitted that he had done absolutely nothing to deserve being put in prison, and he's innocent. Is he bitter? Is he resentful? 
Is he complaining about all the injustice in his life? No. Paul was a servant of Christ. He was a slave of Christ. His imprisonment had come about because of his preaching of the gospel, and he had done everything he could reasonably do to gain his freedom, and it had failed. And so Paul rested in Christ. If God wanted Paul free, God was certainly able to do so. God had the power. He had freed Peter from prison, after all, and earlier than that, he had freed Paul from a short stretch in jail in Philippi. But for whatever reason, God had decreed for Paul to remain a prisoner. And so Paul rested in the will of God, and he said, I am a prisoner of Christ. I'm at peace. I'm without resentment. Very often, you and I find ourselves trapped in circumstances beyond our control. They are in some way painful. They are in some way unjust. We do what we can to escape them, but our labors and our efforts don't work. It can't be done, at least not without sin. Maybe you're single and you want to be married. Maybe you're married and you wish that you were single or you wish that you weren't married to the person that you're married to. Maybe you've got a job you hate, dead-end job. Maybe, maybe it's a physical limitation or, or a disability. Maybe it's a, a place, a town, or an assisted living facility that you just would love to break out of, but you can't. Maybe it's poverty and a lack of money and a lack of opportunity. And you have done everything you can possibly think of to improve your situation, to free yourself, to repair the situation or the relationship, and nothing you have done has worked at all. Friend, don't fret. It will only lead to sin. That's what, that's what David says in Psalm 37, 8, refrain from anger, forsake wrath, fret not yourself. It tends only to evil. You are not a prisoner of your circumstances if you belong to Jesus Christ. You are a prisoner of Christ. And Christ has decreed that you dwell where you dwell for right now. And you need to learn how to rest in that. And you need to learn how to be at peace. And this is not a new experience in the life of God. Think of Joseph. His brothers hate him for well, not no reason. He was an arrogant little twit. But, but they, he certainly didn't uh, deserve what they did to him. And then he gets sold into slavery, and, and God prospers him there. And then his master's wife comes on to him, and, and, uh, and he ends up in jail. And it was an unjust prison. So he said, I have done nothing to deserve this. And he was there for years. That's how it goes with God's people sometimes. And God has purpose for that. Listen again to the advice of David from Psalm 37. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and befriend faithfulness. What land? Well, whatever land you're dwelling in. The land of an unhappy marriage. The land of a dead-end job. The land of a physical limitation. Just dwell there. Just dwell there patiently. Listen to what David says again. Commit your way to the Lord, trust in Him, and He will act. When? When He sees fit. Not when you see fit. When He sees fit. Be still 
before the Lord and wait patiently for him. If you can get out of your circumstances without sin, by all means, do so. But if you can't, be at rest in the Lord. He has purpose for your circumstances. Search diligently then to discover it. Be confident that He has not abandoned you. He has not forsaken you. He has not quit loving you. It probably isn't even discipline for your sin, though it might be. It certainly wasn't for Paul, and it certainly wasn't for Joseph. Well, he wasn't just a prisoner of Christ, he says. He says, also, I'm a prisoner on behalf of the Gentiles. And once again, we have to kind of enter into an alien world and kind of twist our minds around the things that happen in the Scripture to really properly understand them. We go back to the passage in Acts that deals with the story of the events that led up to Paul's arrest. I told you he had brought Timothy into the temple, and before he had done so, he had circumcised him. Now, Timothy was, was Jewish. His mom was Jewish. His dad was a Greek. But he had every right to be in that temple where he went. And, and it caused a, a riot, an unjust riot. And so we go back to the passage in Acts that deal with the story of Paul's arrest. And when the riot happened, the Romans come in and they grab him because he's about to be lynched. And, and he says, can I, can I talk to the people? And so he, he, the Romans are like, all right, everybody shut up and listen to him. And Paul begins to address them in the Hebrew language. And he tells them his, his conversion story. And he tells them about how the risen Jesus appeared to him and how prior to that he had been a persecutor of the church. And then he said that the risen Jesus had appeared to him, telling him to go to the Gentiles. And in Acts twenty two twenty two it says, up to that word they listened to him. So they're like, all right, all ears. We're, we're open to this idea of Jesus getting a hold of you. We've heard of him. We've seen his disciples running around the temple. They're impressive people, so we'll listen to you. And then all of a sudden he says, and Jesus told me to go to the Gentiles. Up until that point, they listened to him. Then they raised their voices and said, away with this fellow from the earth. He should not be allowed to live. Why? Why? Because that's when the, the Jews really began to try, before they opposed him, but now they try in earnest to kill him. And from, the, from there, he, he began a whole series of unjust imprisonments and murder attempts and false trials. They wanted Paul because Paul was taking the gospel of Jesus Christ to the Gentiles. And they hated him for that. And so Paul's life was in danger precisely for these people, for these Gentile people. In other words, Paul did what was good and right and generous. Paul did what God told him to do. He obeyed God, and instead of being appreciated, instead of being rewarded for it, he was persecuted and abused for it. And he was persecuted and abused for it by the visible people of God, the Jewish people. It's helpful, perhaps, to think of the Jewish people as the visible church from the time of Abraham until the day of Pentecost, when Jesus said, all right, we're going into phase two now, and things are going to be a little different. The nation of Israel was then what the Presbyterian church and the Baptist church and the Lutheran church and the non-denominational evangelical church are today. They were the visible community of those who are making a public claim to be the people among whom God is at work in a saving and a redeeming way. And here comes Paul, and before him Peter, and Philip, who baptized an Ethiopian, 
and before him the Lord Jesus himself and a Syrophoenician woman with a desperately ill daughter and also a woman at a well in Samaria. And before that, we have the prophet Isaiah saying things about the Gentiles coming to God. And and King David saying it in the Psalms as well. Didn't he say in Psalm 2, he's going to make the nations an inheritance for the Son. So this was not totally new to the Jewish mind. But it's Paul who had the clearest mandate on this issue. It was Paul who was told, go to these people. Now, it's important to know that Paul submitted himself and his gospel to the other apostles at Jerusalem before he did anything. He he submitted himself, and he wanted to make sure that he wasn't running in vain. You can read about this in Galatians 2. And the other apostles accepted him. They accepted his message. They accepted his apostleship, and they accepted his call to the Gentiles. And the only instruction they had for him was, remember the poor. And Paul said, I was, a, oh, I was always anxious to do that anyway. And so Paul did not strike out on his own. Paul was examined and approved and commissioned by the Jerusalem Presbytery, if you like. And he went out doing what both Jews, what, what Jesus rather, and the rightfully ordained leadership of Jerusalem had commissioned him to do. And he was bitterly opposed everywhere he went both by the Jews who were his own flesh and blood and by the Gentiles to whom he had been sent with a free offer of salvation through Christ Jesus and even from time to time by representatives of the Jerusalem church who came to make sure that everybody was believing correct doctrine as they understood it and doing the things they were supposed to be doing. He was bitterly opposed everywhere he went. You would think everyone would be grateful. Almost no one was, it seems. And many were just crazy angry about the whole thing. And so it will be with you from time to time, Christian. You might think that obedience to the Lord and careful attention to His Word will bring blessing and prosperity and ease. Throngs of grateful people will line up to praise you and thank you for your faithful service to the Lord. Many a young man or a young woman enters full-time Christian ministry thinking, well, I know the world will oppose me, but the church will at least have my back and offer a base of support and care and acceptance. And sooner or later, they're disappointed to discover that the church is full of people who are pursuing their own agendas rather than Christ's. And often they're using the church and its resources to pursue those agendas. And often they're doing so cloaked in the name of Christ and in the mantle of his authority. That's what the church at Corinth did to Paul. He founds the church, and they go around verbally abusing him because some other people came who were super apostles and took their money. And they're like, Paul, didn't he take our money? Because he wasn't as good an apostle as these guys. This guy took like $5,000 off of me, so he must be special. And Paul's like, you're kind of morons, you know that, right? They're fleecing you. And I came and I worked among you to pay my own bills. And, and, and you think that I'm less than them? That's how they treated him. He knew that cost. He knew that pain. Yet he was remarkably free from bitterness and anger. And why is that? Well, he tells us very frankly and forthrightly in various places in the New Testament. 
For instance, in Philippians chapter 4, Paul thanks the church at Philippi for their financial support, but he also wants them to know that even when they can't help him for some reason, he he says, I'm fine. I'm fine. I know what it is to have a lot, and I know what it is to have a little, and either way is okay with me. I have complete confidence in Christ to supply all my needs. In 2 Corinthians chapter 6, he talks about the mistreatment that he received from all directions as he and his companions ministered. And And he speaks of riots and hardship and hunger and beatings and slander, and a refusal to be on, on the part of some who recognize their authority, and uh, I'm sorry, the refusal on the part of some to recognize his authority, and people lied about him, and they disrespected him, and they dismissed him, and they considered, the, uh, he, he says at one point, he says, we are considered the, the off-scourings, the scum of the earth. The, the word in Greek is literally, you know how like you do the dishes in the sink? Are you like me where you do the dishes before you put them in the dishwasher because the dishwasher doesn't clean the dishes anymore because the government says you can only use two gallons of water, right? So I, I do the dishes and then I put them in the dishwasher basically to sterilize them. And, and when you're done, there's all that gross stuff at the bottom of the sink when you let the water out. And that's the off scouring. And Paul says, everybody treats us like that. We're the scum of the earth, the offscouring of the earth. We're the soggy food at the bottom of the sink full of dirty dishes. And Paul says, and we respond. And how do we respond? We respond with purity, with knowledge, with patience, with kindness, with genuine love and truthful speech. And this they were able to do, he says, because they knew themselves to be servants of God first and foremost. That, that helps a lot, doesn't it? Because when you think of yourself as a servant of people and then the people don't do what you think they ought to do and they aren't grateful, then you're disappointed. But if you say, I'm, I'm not a servant of people, I'm a servant of God and God told me to do this for those people and that, their response is between them and God. I'm, I don't need to get emotionally wrapped up in that because God is pleased with me. I'm, he said, I'm a servant of God. I'm a servant of the Most High. And I'm full of the Holy Spirit. And I'm full of the power of God. And he winds up in 2 Corinthians 12 by saying, for the sake of Christ, I am content with hardship and insults and weakness and persecution and calamities because when I'm weak, then I'm strong. I mean, what are you going to do with a guy who will not take his eye off the ball? What are you going to do to stop a guy who will not be stopped when those who oppose him and try to weaken him are not able to do so because the weaker he gets, humanly speaking, the stronger the power of God gets as it operates through him and the more glorified Christ is. Paul says, I love that. I'm a complete wimp sometimes. And then Christ comes and he lifts me up and he sets me down in power. And all of a sudden I'm walking in the power of God and the people who are coming at me in the flesh are like, We don't know what to do with this. There's a wonderful story. There's a wonderful Chinese Christian, Brother Yoon. I'm I'm thinking about trying to invite him here. He lives in Germany, and uh, he will come and visit us the next time he comes to the United States. His story is wonderful. It's called The Heavenly Man, that the book is. I, I, I highly recommend it. And he was one of the first early Christians who God just called to himself in the 70s in Maoist China. And he started the house church movement, in part, with other Christians. And they arrest him. They'd beat him up. 
and they didn't just beat him up. I mean, they like broke his legs and they would torture him with an with a electric cattle prod. And, I mean, and, and they, they put him in prison. He'd be like, all right. And he'd start witnessing all the other prisoners. And they'd be like, shut up. And they'd put him by himself. So he'd start witnessing to the guards and the guards would get converted. And they'd take him to another prison. And all of a sudden, the, the chief of that prison is like, I really like this guy. And he'd start evangelizing the head of the prison. They couldn't shut him up. They couldn't beat him up enough. And that's how Paul did it. Paul says, when I'm weak, I'm strong. You see, Paul was driven by one thing and one thing only. He had a mandate from Christ who had saved him and given him a life-sustaining vision and a mission to fulfill. And he was going to preach the gospel of Christ to the Gentiles if it killed him. And he did, it didn't matter who didn't like it. Because Paul had been gripped by the beauty and the power and the majesty of a vision that Christ had given to him. And he talks about that. And his vision was this, that the Gentiles would become fellow heirs of the kingdom with the believing Jews and that the whole earth would one day be full of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And this new multi-ethnic worldwide body of Christ called the church would set believing Gentile and believing Jew in equal status under Christ. Now, as I mentioned before, the Jews of Paul's day did have an understanding that one day the Gentiles would bow to God, but they envisioned it as the bowing of a conquered people to their conquerors and the God of their conquerors. And specifically, the Jews looked for a day when uh, under a, a, a human military Messiah king, they would conquer and enslave the Gentiles and rule them as the Gentiles had so often ruled the Jews with a rod of iron. It was one of their cherished cultural dreams. And some of them haven't quite entirely given up on it even today. And we're, doing, we're going to take over the whole place, they said. We're going to be the people, and everybody's going to come and bow to us. They're going to come to Jerusalem and bring us presents, and we're going to set our feet on their necks. And they're going to bow to our God and say, your God is superior to my God because we lost a war, and your God won it for you. And they were like, we can't wait. We can't wait to hurt them like they hurt us. We can't wait. And Paul comes along and he says, no, you're misreading your Bible. It's not going to be like that. In Christ, they will be your friends. They will be your brothers and your sisters. You will be one humanity who inherits the earth together and rules it with Christ. And so it will be. And that's the mystery that Paul mentions twice. He mentions it in verse 4, and he mentions it again in verse 9. Now, in the Bible, a mystery is not something that you can figure out if you pay careful attention to the clues. A mystery is something that you never could have known because God had concealed it. He had hidden it until the time that he chose to reveal it. So let's look carefully at Ephesians chapter 3, in verses 9 and 10, because I want to show you something, and I want to show you something I think is really cool. So Ephesians chapter 3, and verses 9 and 10. And to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God, who created all things, so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers 
and authorities in the heavenly places. Now, what in the world does that mean? Well, before Jesus came, the manifest presence of the kingdom of God was basically only found amongst the Jews. And even there, it was manifest in their history only sporadically. Um, you see it, for instance, in, in the Exodus. And you see it in the, the wilderness wanderings. You see it in the conquest of the promised land. You, you see it very imperfectly in the kingships of David and even more imperfectly in the kingship of Solomon. But there were long periods of time where the presence of the kingdom of God was not at all apparent anywhere on the earth, even amongst the Jewish people. And the relationship of the Jewish people to that kingdom of God was not at all clear to them. They knew they were involved somehow, but they didn't quite know what their part was. And the rest of the world, friends, was a howling wasteland of spiritual darkness and moral evil where demons were worshipped as gods and people did horrible, horrible things trying to serve their false gods. I mean, you think it's dark now. At least the world has, whether it pays any attention to it or not, the witness of the gospel of Christ. But then there was nothing. There was the Jewish people, and they were pretty unsteady a lot of the time. And then everywhere else, it was unimaginable blackness and wickedness. People did not know which way was up. They did not know what they ought to do. They sacrificed little bitty babies in order to secure their agricultural production for the next year. They would lay them in the arms of a superheated statue and burn them alive, hoping that their screams would pacify the God. My ancestors running around Scandinavia and Latvia and Lithuania were sacrificing human beings to trees, and they thought it only right and good. They were cutting the heads off of their enemies and scooping out the brains and using their heads as cups for their wine, and they thought it was good that they did so. The darkness and the evil were unimaginable. It was the kingdom of Satan, purely the kingdom of Satan. And Satan held it all very firmly in his grip. And Jesus comes on the scene, and his main message is the kingdom of God now has drawn near, and people can step into the kingdom and live in it simply by coming to Jesus and by placing their confidence in him for every issue of life and death and everything else. And then they can learn how to follow him and be his apprentice or his student or his disciple, and he will walk with them, and they will walk with him in this kingdom of love and light and power and beauty and goodness. But the arrival of the kingdom and the, uh, the authority of the kingdom as a, a place for human beings to learn how to dwell in this life was the subject of much misunderstanding. And that includes misunderstanding by Satan and his angels. The, that's what that... That, that passage in there is about the powers and principalities 
in the heavenlies. You, you may have noticed, if you know your New Testament, that the demons constantly asked Jesus why he was there. Why are, why are you here? Why are you doing this, Jesus? Why are you doing what you're doing? Have you come to torment us before our time? What are you doing? And Jesus gave a strong hint about the whole thing in Matthew 16 when he said to, to his disciples, I'm going to build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And, and in that passage, hell there is literally the Greek word Hades, which is the grave or, or death. The devil doesn't live in hell and own hell like you see in the cartoons. Hell is God's. That's what he does with people who are irretrievably useless. That's the garbage dump, the cosmic garbage dump for the irretrievably useless. Hell is, is God's hell. The, but, but Hades, the grave, well, that's Satan's king. That's death. Hebrews 2, 14 and 15 make it clear that, that the power of death and the fear of death, which subjects human beings to lifelong slavery, is the primary source of power and influence for Satan in this world. So Hades, in this passage, is a shorthand way of talking about the kingdom of the devil. He says, I'm going to I'm going to build my church and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. Now, I want you to notice something. Notice that Hades has gates. Now, I don't know how old I was when it dawned on me that gates are not offensive structures. They are defensive structures. Nobody has ever been attacked by a gate, right? Nobody comes along and says, I'm going to hit you with my gate. No. The gate is what you hide behind when the enemy's on the outside. Hades has gates. And gates are weak. Gates are defensive points that are often attacked because they are weak and vulnerable. And so what is Jesus saying here? Hell has gates. The gates won't be able to withstand the assault of the church on hell. He's saying that the church's primary mission is to assault and invade the kingdom of Satan. Now, where was the kingdom of Satan? Right up until the time of Jesus? Well, it was everywhere except among the Jews. And then what does the risen Jesus tell Paul to do? He says, go out, almost alone by yourself, humanly speaking, and start assaulting the kingdom of Satan and plunder him of his most cherished possessions, people. The, the precious souls of lost men and women Go out there, Paul. Bring the good news of the gospel. Set them free through Christ from death and from the fear of death. Arm them with spiritual weapons that our captain will provide. Train them as you would train special forces soldiers who routinely operate behind enemy lines and start doing maximum damage to Satan's kingdom. You are offense, Paul, and Satan is running defense. In that very act of redeeming us and equipping us and empowering us from spirit, for spiritual warfare, the souls of men and women from every nation and tribe and, nation and language and tongue um, is, is, is being made manifest. And Jesus is issuing a communication to Satan. That's what Ephesians 3.10 says. Look at it. Look at it very carefully. Remember that we, we wrestle not against flesh and blood. He tells us that a little bit later in Ephesians 6. But, but look at, who, who are we informing here? 
Ephesians chapter 3 and verse 10. So that through the church, the manifold wisdom, so, so God's speaking to somebody through the church, the activities of the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to who? To the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. In other words, God has planned this. God has decreed that we are going to win, and he guarantees it. And Paul says, I I will lose nothing of value. Instead, I will gain everything. I'm a soldier of Christ, and I'm, I'm fighting Satan on his own home turf. I never expected it to be easy says, Paul, I I never expected fair treatment from Satan and his forces. That would be foolish to do so. And I don't want you to expect it to be easy or fair either. Oh, Ephesian church, don't lose heart. Christ wins, and I'm suffering. I'm suffering for you, and I'm suffering for Christ, and that is for your glory. You see, the church is central to God's plan for the ultimate defeat of evil. The church, you and me, this place, the the people of God, we are central to God's plan to defeat evil. We have a job to do. We're sheep, but we're like teenage mutant ninja sheep. And we've got weapons, and we've got a warfare to fight, and and we've got a job to do. And the the job is to go and, and plunder the kingdom of Satan, and put him on notice that his time is short. We are warriors. We are an elite search and rescue squad, faithfully following the captain of the army of the host of the Lord. He does not need us to win this war. He he could do it all by himself very easily, but he invites us. He says, "Let let me crown you with tremendous dignity and honor and glory and power. Let me draft you in my fight and use you. And he grants us this privilege of fighting with him and fighting for him. And he says, this this is your proper glory. This is your proper honor. And every time you bend the knee in prayer, Every time you speak the name of Jesus to a lost person, every time you open the scriptures and arm yourselves from the sword of the the Lord, you are doing something of eternal importance. You are arming yourself. You are training for battle. Every time you jump in to the anguish of a lost soul, a life just thrashing around in pain, and say, peace, be still. Jesus is here. You are fighting a battle for the army of the Lord. And God loves it. And he'll be with you. And he'll take care of you. And you might go to prison. You might have some scars. You might have less money than you could have had otherwise. You might be confined someplace that you don't want to be confined. So what? So what? One day you'll be free. Your momentary light afflictions are not worth comparing to the eternal weight of glory that will be revealed in us. That's who you are. 
Lord Jesus, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in your sight. For you are my rock and my redeemer.